a Podcast One production. As a very basic skill, almost entry level if you like, you need to be financially numerate. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, as well as 11 of the top ASX listed companies. And this is Fast Track. On this episode, are you ready to join a board with my guest, Elizabeth Proust AO? Elizabeth is one of Australia's leading business figures. She's chairperson of Nestle Australia, chairperson of the Bank of Melbourne, a non-executive director of Lendlease, and a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. When discussing future prospects with my clients, I inevitably hear them say, I want to be on a board. My response is not exactly what they're expecting when I say, really? Do you know what happens on a board? Being a board director is a terrific opportunity for talented executives to look for the next step. But what actually happens at a board? And are you ready and able to contribute? Elizabeth Proust is one of Australia's leading business figures. Elizabeth, I couldn't think of anyone better than to ask the next question, what actually happens on a board? And what's the role of a board director? It's an interesting question because, of course, unless you've been on one, it's totally shrouded in in mystery and a fair bit of mystique, I think. Boards are certainly in the listed space there to monitor, to probe, to set the direction, to hold executives to account. They're there for the good times and the bad times. They're there to monitor remuneration, the whole future growth of of the company. Mm. And I think that because it happens in a closed environment and because the only people who actually witness it, directors themselves, the executives who report to the board, and a variety of people, the company secretary, auditors, etc., it's a relatively small group of people who actually experience what happens in a board. And I think one of the things that your clients may be saying to you is, it would suit my lifestyle. Certainly women in particular have said that to me. How do I get on a board? My executive career is too stressful, too busy. I'd like a change of lifestyle. And that to me is a big red flag because it's not a lifestyle choice. It might in good times mean you're working less hours, it might, but when things go wrong, a takeover, a crisis in the organisation, you can be working all hours Mm. and it's not a lifestyle and if you think that way, it's probably not the career for you. At a board table and you've got between seven and 12 board members usually in a room. Usually. Yeah, a chairperson of which you are of two Mm. entities at the moment, organisations. How long do these board meetings go for and, and, you know, how much time does it actually take to be on an ASX listed board? Of course, the answer, as you might expect, is that depends. Um, so some boards, I was on a funds management board in the past, a listed board that met 10 times a year, generally for a day a month, and then another afternoon or three quarters of a day for the committee meetings. And the reading would be between another day, day and a half, depending upon the issues. With Lendlease, we meet eight times a year, but we meet up to three days each time. We meet three times offshore in our various uh, parts of the world. So there's travel time uh, to that. The 
papers can be voluminous uh, and can be several days of, of reading. So when you see a board calendar, you might think that's only a day a month or two days a month, but the reading, the thinking about the issues, the meetings that you need to have, especially in complex organisations, to make sure you understand the issues all add up on top of that. So it's not a day a month or even two days a month. Great. A bit like running a podcast. It looks easy from the outset, but actually there's a whole lot of work behind it. And people who don't do it think it is easy. Exactly. Um, I'm definitely not comparing being on a board to having a podcast. However, it's what you see is not always what you get, which is why with a bit of mystery beside it, people were thinking this is potentially a less stressful option. So some of the things that you deal with, you said before that I just want to check on before we talk about the skills and attributes needed. I'm just interested. So you're doing takeover work? You might be doing actual takeover work or you might be subject of a takeover or you might be thinking, what if we were approached for a takeover? So if I give you a concrete example, I was a a non-executive director of an engineering company. It was a public but unlisted company and the shareholders who are largely the employees decided that they wanted to sell. And so we were in as directors, especially the non-executive directors, because there are executive directors and non-executive directors, we're in the position where we had to go through the whole process of having decided to sell, who were the possible purchasers, make sure that it was done to get the best price for the shareholders, make sure it was done with probity, all of that. And In that company, we went from meeting six times a year to meeting 52 times. So you can be working on both sides of a takeover and including just the theoretical part of what would happen Mm. if that happened to us. You'd be working on strategy. How do we grow this organisation? You can be dealing on customer complaints, not necessarily the nitty-gritty, but as we saw with the Hain Royal Commission, what do we know? about our customers? What are they telling us about our culture? You can be dealing with succession planning for the CEO and the senior executives, remuneration. And as you know, this is a particularly vexed issue at the moment. Mm. So a whole range of issues that, that come to the board and require you to think deeply about the issues, to spend quite some time with your colleagues in teasing them out and coming to a a collaborative decision, it's in one sense a team sport. You're playing in a team and people don't record who had differences of opinion, but of course you'll have differences of opinion on the way to coming to a decision. And as I think about that, I'm trying to think of the people who would possibly have all those skills and attributes to deal with the complexity of those complex issues. And um, it leads to my question, what skills and attributes do I need if I think this is the sort of thing I'd like as a board career? In the past, people used to think we need a lawyer or we need an accountant for our board. And I think that might have worked decades ago. Now people say we need for our next director somebody with a raft of skills and experiences. So we need somebody who understands the digital space. We need a strategic thinker. We need somebody who knows how large organisations work. But as a very basic skill, almost entry level, if you like, you need to be financially numerate. The problem with 
many women's careers is that they've been in legal areas, marketing, HR, where they haven't had responsibility for a P&L. I'm not saying you need to be a chief executive, a chief financial officer or an auditor, but you need a basic level of ability to understand a balance sheet, to read a P&L, to take part in the discussions about the finances of the organisation, however small or large. And then on top of that, you add the other. Okay, so the understanding, the base level of financial acumen and skills, how do I gain this these skills? I haven't, I've done my own p and my own businesses, but mm. they're not really large enough to actually give me the skills required for a multi-million dollar balance sheet. At the least, you need to do a program which allows you to analyse balance sheets to understand the finances of an organisation, to be able to identify what the issues are in the revenue or the costs. Uh, That doesn't mean you need to go and do a three-year or four-year accounting degree, but it does mean taking advantage of short courses that are offered. The company director's course, which we'll probably talk about in a moment, has one of the five days devoted entirely to finance. I, I think that's still probably not enough, but everybody who sits around the board table, certainly in the listed space and in large private companies, does need to have a basic level of understanding of finances. And I know when I was at the Australian Institute of Company Directors and being involved in choosing women who'd applied to be mentored by senior chairs and directors, these are aspiring female directors, too many of them, at least in their CV, didn't demonstrate even a base level of financial skills. And so we couldn't have them on the program. We gave them the feedback that they should think about how they should develop their financial skills, but we couldn't have them on the program because they didn't have that base level. So that base level again. So let's talk about education, Elizabeth. It's this idea of knowing we need a base level of skills, but you talked about the AICD course, the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Tell me about those options there that we might have if we want to be board ready and going for a greater education. It's rare today to find aspiring directors who don't have university qualifications. So everybody comes with their law degree or their engineering degree or, or whatever. At the age at which you join a board, those skills are, and, and that education is probably a little out of date. My arts degree was in the 70s. My law degree was in the 80s. And so people need, and they would do this in almost every other sphere of life, is a basic understanding of what it means to be a company director. And I would say this because I used to chair the AICD, but I think the preeminent course is the five-day AICD company director course, which is a done in a small classroom, about 25 people, where you go through strategy, you go through governance, you go through legal issues, you go through finance. Many of them are executives who report to a board and want to understand that better. So it's a quite eclectic mix of people. And so it's both learning from the person who's facilitating that particular topic, but also learning from the cohort. Okay, great. So go and doing an, an AICD course. Um, how else might I get some board readiness? I think, and there's a recent Ernst & Young and 30% Club report, which I commend to people, it's on both their websites, shows that what you need is, as I said, the financial skills, but it also uh, looks at what other things women need all directors need, but especially women, and that is a network. What I find is that, and this happens to young women as well as older women, 
They think that I will just work really hard and I will be noticed and therefore either promoted or offered a board role. And they miss that networking part of life. Many board roles come, some people pejoratively call it the old boys network or the old girls network, but it it comes from your networks, people you've worked with, people you've met in your professional life. The people who are usually most successful at making the move from executive life into directorships are those who've got a broad network so that if somebody wants to do informal checking, what is this person really like, they can talk to somebody in your network. You talked briefly about they're the old boys club or the old girls club and people often say, oh, the deck chairs are just being moved from one board to another. There's no openings, there's no opportunities. What do you say to that? That's said so often that it's almost become fact. It's not actually. Uh, Last time I looked, and this is a few months out of date, there were 178 different women on ASX 200 boards. Now, there are a few who've got three or four directorships in that space, but the average woman has one ASX 200 directorship. That's me. My other two boards are not in the ASX. And, and so that is a perception and it's probably fed by just a few people. But generally speaking, that's not the case. But perceptions persist, as you know. So if I want to get on a board, what's the trajectory? What's the navigated path that is sort of recommended? I know we could go down lots of different paths and no one path is the right one. But I'm just interested, is there a sort of idea of of what I might take, what first steps I might take? I've gone to the AICD, I might have a mentor, I'm plugging into my networks, I'm communicating to others about what I want. What else is it that I can do in those first steps? People will be looking at your CV and they'll be looking for a number of things. They'll be looking to see, have you been a CEO? Have you run a large line within a large organisation? Have you been a partner in a professional services firm, law, accounting, etc.? They're the main paths because what people are looking for, and here we're talking the ASX, say, 200 They're large, complex businesses that require not necessarily everyone around the board table, but the majority to understand how large, complex businesses work. Now, there are exceptions to that always. There's somebody who's been a marketer who's got some skills that a particular company identifies. There's somebody who's a really good strategic thinker or the organisation realises that while they might have skills in the digital space in the company, nobody around the board table really understands where that's taking us. And so there'll be somebody who'll come almost from left field. But if you look at annual reports and you look at the profiles of directors of those companies, you'll find basically what I said at the start. They've been CEOs, they've been running big lines, or they've been in professional services firms. So what can go wrong at a board? What do we need to be aware of? I mean, obviously, we mentioned the Hain Royal Commission. There are things that come from left field. I know people on boards of aged care, uh, private equity at the moment, who who have got a number of things that they need to be concerned about. What else can go wrong if you're sitting on a board? 
lots of things can can go wrong. You can have a sexual harassment case somewhere in the organisation. You can have a high-profile firing of somebody. You can have, and this happened in the case of the CBA before the Royal Commission, and that was that APRA, the prudential regulator, looked at the board of the Commonwealth Bank and said, and people are still pondering this, that there was a two-collegiate atmosphere environment around that board table. and Not, so, not challenging enough, not questioning what we're doing and why we're doing not it. Not enough challenge to each other around the board table and not enough challenge to management. That's been a big wake-up call to Australian companies, that and the Royal Commission, or I should say Royal Commissions, because I think people were reasonably comfortable that they had a collaborative environment around the board table. You know, I said it is a team sport. Obviously, the APRA thought that, it, and subsequently been proven, that was too collaborative and not enough challenge. And so boards really have to work on how do we get that balance between it being a team sport where there is only one outcome, you know, one decision. Do we buy this company? Do we do this? Uh, everybody has to line up behind it because if you don't, if you feel very strongly, for example, that everybody else is going to line up behind candidate A and you think candidate B, that's probably a point at which you resign from the from the board. Right. And so these are not inconsequential decisions. So the balance between how much challenge and how much collaboration is a very fine one. So on that, Elizabeth, I'm interested in the role that the board has with the CEO are they there to support unequivocally the every decision the CEO makes? Is it a challenge point? What is the role? The CEO is usually a member of the board, an executive director of the board, uh, but is in a, a position where he or she is appraised by the board, in particular by the chairman, and performance is monitored. Hard questions are asked about strategy, about the team, about something that might have happened. The best relationships are those where the CEO is not your best friend. It's a very professional working relationship, but challenge to the CEO about decisions, about recommendations, so that when recommendations come to the board, they're not rubber stamped. They're questioned, they're probed. What are some of the alternatives we might consider? And so a CEO is what's called a, an executive director, someone who works in the business. Yes. And the non-executive directors are those that are not paid or working within the business. Is that the clarification there? A non-executive director is an independent, in the Australian context, an independent director who is uh, not an employee of the company, is paid, obviously, by the company, has other roles. They might be on a charity, they might be on a government board, they might be in other listed companies, but is there um, part-time to monitor, to make the key decisions on the recommendation of management. If I go back to my example of the engineering company that we sold, we had, because it wasn't a listed company, different governance rules applied, we had three non-executive directors, of which I was one, and six executive directors who, in their day jobs, worked in the business. Okay, and that's part of the constitution that's made up for the board, uh, for the business, yeah. And the constitution provided there could be up to three non-executive directors. If I look at my role at Nestle, which is a subsidiary company of a global listed company, I'm the only non-executive. They have a non-executive chair and then the 
other members of the Australian board are executives, including the managing director, who work in the business day to day. So let's go back to, am I ready for a board? So in summary, I'm hearing you say, know what boards do, number one, which has been fascinating today, and understand what skills and attributes that I need to contribute to a board and also get the education required. If you've got some gaps, we know the foundation is the financial acumen, the ability to understand P&L and commercial acumen, but also understanding what it means to be on the board and, and what your contribution might be. And we've talked about um, getting on a board and we've talked about the network and uh, potentially the role of a headhunter, but mostly through network. How do I know if I'm a fit for a certain business or a certain board? Do you just go on any board that offers you or is there a need to have a cultural fit or a, a values alignment? Certainly need to have a values alignment. Also, when you're thinking about that as a step, the conversation you should have with your mentor or with others who know you is, what is it that I would bring? So I've been offered roles on boards in the past, which I haven't taken up because I either couldn't see a cultural or values alignment or I didn't think that there was anything that I could bring to that particular organisation. And when I was approached 10 years ago about Nestle, and that was done by a search firm, my response was after listening to the fact that I'd been placed on the shortlist, I said, what I know about food manufacturing, I could write on a postage stamp. I don't even cook. So it seemed I wasn't much of a fit. And she, the headhunter explained to me that because, generally speaking, the managing director of Nestle Oceania is usually somebody from outside Australia, they don't have a good understanding of our, shall we say, unusual political environment, and they don't generally have any Australian business connections. They know the Nestle world. And, and they know the Nestle businesses, but not the Australian environment. So in addition to chairing the Nestle Australia board, my role has been, I guess you'd say, mentoring about how Australian business works and how the Australian Federation works and what that means for Nestle. And so that then made sense. And so when you're talking to somebody about a board, you're not asking to be flattered. You're asking for somebody to make, to help you make an assessment of what would I bring to this, to this board. And sometimes that's entirely left field. Other times when I joined the funds management board, I'd been at a bank for eight years. They were looking for somebody with financial experience, financial services experience. And I had that. And so that, that was slightly lateral, but still within the same industry. Great. So any last ideas or advice for people out there who think that they'd like to get onto a board? I think you need to make sure you're well read about what boards do. And there's probably too much literature about that, but the AICD website is a good place to start. Develop a network of people who are on boards or aspiring to be on boards and don't rule out joining your school council, being on a charitable board, being open to serving on a government board because they're not necessarily stepping stones, but they will give you an insight into what boards do and allow you to put something back into the community at the same time. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And everyone, remember, make good choices. Start thinking about what you need now to be on a board. Fast Track is produced in the studios of Podcast One Australia. 
The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcast1australia.com.au. Download the app or search Fast Track Career Conversations podcast.